0: Hello and welcome to The Double Pivot, the analytics podcast that is this week literally about analytics. But I promise we'll make it fun and we'll make it interesting because what we want to do this week is something different. What we want to do this week is talk to somebody who is really smart and really cool and who knows all about the topic we want to talk about. What we want to talk about is media and analytics. This has been something that's been in discussion on the Twitters. Uh, recently and has been, I think, in discussion in soccer more generally for a while. What does it mean to do analytics well and tell stories with analytics well? And the person, our, our guest this week is at, is the journalist, uh, writer, podcaster, uh, author, general international man of soccer knowledge and mystery, Gab Marcotti. So we'll be jumping to that uh, interview in just a moment, but uh, a- a- as always, there are two of us. I am Michael Kelly, and I'm joined by Mike Goodman.
1: Hey, Kelly. Uh The music you heard, in, heard on the way in was The Whalers. Uh, Max will be on the other side of the virtual glass between now and when you hear this, <laughs> and uh, like us, subscribe, download, if not for our sakes, Marcades. Um, yeah. And yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. So we are... Doing something, as we said, a little bit different
0: this week. And we will be having a discussion with a fantastic guest, a globe bestriding soccer journalist and a host of his own podcast, Gab Marcotti. Welcome to the Double Pivot, Gab.
2: Great to be with you guys.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, we sort of thought we'd talk a little bit about, um, we're going to say the word analytics a lot. <laughs> the next little while, which... And we um, may
0: cycle back around to some of our issues with that, depending. We
1: we did want to talk to you a little bit about sort of the role that the developing field of statistics has played in media uh, over the last few years, and sort of how, as analytics and and practitioners of stats have become more involved uh, in the game, how that's sort of trickled out into the media and into, like, wider consumption of soccer. So I guess maybe the place to start is, do you... I I guess I shouldn't assume the premise, right? Like, do you feel like that's what's going on? Well,
2: um, when we talk about, I don't want to then be ridiculed by you folk of not knowing the difference between analytics and and stats. So I'm going to sort of weigh my words uh, (laughs) carefully. But 15 years ago, Nobody talked about assists. The only thing that was relevant, the only, the only thing that we counted in football was or 15, maybe even 20 years ago when, when I started writing after the Atlanta Olympics, um, the only thing we really counted was, was goals. If you were super sophisticated, you might do goals per game. Um, and then people, some people started counting assists uh then they kind of figured out, oh well, we can sort of figure out goals for a minute. And then we moved on to stuff that people can understand like like possession I'm talk- like like possession. I'm talking about like the really mainstream media. So we got as far as possession um and, and shots on goal and I think we're kind of struggling to get to like the next sort of level of of numbers that, that people can can understand you know we we made a huge deal when Arsene Wenger mentioned expected goals in a press conference but you know uh right now i think still the vast majority of people have absolutely no idea what that means
0: yeah i i think it's um i think it's really fascinating you know from a you know from an american perspective um where our sports have always been kind of inundated (laughs) with stats, and the debate has been about how to use them. You know, back uh, the sort of story back when I was growing up was that, um, you know, people who use – the sort of traditionalists were the people who said the player with the most runs batted in was the best player. And the debates then were, hey, runs batted in isn't a very good stat for determining player quality or player value. And so you have this debate that plays out on a field that is statistical. And it feels to me like in soccer, getting stats into the conversation, as you were saying, is a fight that is still happening regardless of what exactly you're doing with them.
2: I, I think that's right. I, I I also think part of it is that, you know, there are a lot of statistics or things that we can count that are really quite irrelevant. Um, you know, maybe sure, some yeah. of them are the, the easiest ones to understand. But like, you know, what I watch here on on TV, whether it's a Champions League or I'm watching Sky, or you know, you see like distance covered. <laughs> um or you know, or or, or or passes or even very basic stuff like I mean this isn't necessarily game related, but um the, the Sky Sports over here and I'm not singling them out because they're certainly not the only ones and um but like when they talk about managers they love you know having graphics with stats and and they'll put their win percentages up. Now I maybe it's Italian in me, but like it's not about winning. It's about getting points, right? And once it's three points for a win, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, you know, you can win three games and lose three games, and you'll have a higher win percentage than the guy who wins two games and draws four games, and who would you rather have? Or, you know, uh, this sort of thing. And yet, you know, they persist with this. So I I think on the one hand that that there's there's a hunger to show that You can throw numbers and you want to get these numbers into the conversation. But by the same token, I I think there's an unease about what they mean. And on a very basic level, football folk can kind of unmask the stupid numbers very quickly. And so they don't really make an effort with the numbers that maybe are a little more meaningful.
1: So yeah, I I, I want to sort of drill down on something specific that we just talked about there, which is like there's very common sense problems with a lot of the numbers people use, but it seems like there's a little bit of a communication gap between sort of people who work heavily in numbers and point out, like, this is the problem with the numbers you're using, and people who are sort of in more mainstream media who point out there's something wrong with numbers. Like, a, a lot of practitioners who use stats are, are, in effect, trying to capture the common sense conversations that go on in, in around the sport, but it seems like as they come, sort of cast in numbers, you don't ever get to the point where you're discussing the common sense part of it. You only get to the point where you're discussing the number part of it.
2: Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um, I, I you know I I think there's also there's also a gap there. I think you know. It, Flying the flag for the football folk for for a minute, part of the problem is that, and, and I see this, you know, as as a layman, when I read um, about analytics, you don't get people with with big certainties, um, and then that's kind of a healthy thing to do because we're still this is still in its infancy in many ways, um, but some of the crappier Analytics types, if I can use that technical term, <laughs> um, and worse, some of the football journalists who who discover analytics, they treat certain things like gospel, um, and, and and they speak with absolute certainty. I, I remember, I remember reading, for example, I'm not going to mention who it is, but it's it's a colleague of mine, and I won't mention his newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, um, <laughs> who. You know, he wrote a piece explaining why Lucas Podolski had to be sold, right? And he was obviously briefed on this by somebody at Arsenal. And it was, you know, it was very well, it was a very well-reported piece, and he made the point that Wenger values high-intensity sprints, and basically, to that point in the season, Lucas Podolski had done, I don't know, eighty high-intensity sprints, whereas the other wingers, even Giroud, had done more than 100 high-intensity sprints, right? And then we can debate whether this is useful or not, the high-intensity sprints or whatever. But, you know, this, let's assume for a minute that this is all accurate. This is something that Wenger valued and so on. But then it struck me just just reading it. I said, well, hang on a minute. Podolski's not a starter. You're right. comparing him with people who are starters, and you're using the total number of sprints he's made this season. And so, you know, in my limited way, I have access to the number of minutes people wear, people play, and and you notice that actually he's made you know more sort of sprints per minute, or I guess minutes per sprint than than most Arsenal players, except for a couple. So that goes out the window. But the the fact that you this is presented with such certainty, you know, that that'll instantly be off putting, I think, to to a lot of people. And I think that that's one of the problems that. Um, that you encounter when you bring this stuff into into the mainstream.
0: Yeah, this is sort of, um, th- this was one of the things I've, I've thought about with regards to the sort of term stats and analytics, um, which is that w- the, w- the way that it usually gets talked about, I- I'm going to bring this background to put Um the way it usually gets talked about is that analytic, that stats are just sort of various numbers that measure things, and analytics is using sort of your critical faculties to use those stats and um, the the problem with this is that the thing that you're describing this this article where uh, um that, that that failed to make a, a a proper um you know prop prop that failed to deal properly with um with, with played is doing I think in definitionally analytics is trying to make sense out of those numbers and make Right, a conclusion from it. It's just a bad conclusion because they didn't use the numbers properly. and and so, to me, I think uh, to me, I think what happens is that analytics then becomes this jargon term for authoritative knowledge. and um and 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 I think I think there's a problem in the way we use that term that fits with the problems, the way in which this sort of you know statistical analysis gets presented. um. <laughs>
2: I I I think you're kind of hitting the nail on the head there, and I, as I see it, is, it's another vantage point, and it's very big on percentages. I I, like I can make an analogy, and I don't know if it fits, but, um, I read this piece in the New Yorker, like I don't know, maybe ten years ago, by that guy whose name escapes me, but he's he's Indian, and he writes about medical issues all the time. Mm-hmm. He's got, they have two, they have like Jerome Groupman, and then they have this other dude who's who, who's Indian, he's, he's he's very famous, he's a doctor and stuff and whatever, but anyway, he was describing um, sort of the principle with, uh, with, with going into, with, with emergency room care, and sort of some of the issues involved with it, where if you're an emergency room doctor, somebody comes in with some kind of problem. You have a very limited time to to diagnose, and you're generally always playing the percentages. Well, you know, I, I, I think it's this. Uh, it's more likely that it's this than that, so then I administer, you know, this kind of care. But, of course, if there's like a 1% chance that it's this other thing, then I could be killing him by administering that, so then what do I do? And you're always searching for more information and more, more, not just more information, but more types of information because obviously there's so many, you know, different things from, from heart rate to temperature to, you know, whatever. Um, and I kind of view sort of the, 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 the potential within analytics of, of adding another, another bit of information, but that's only going to be part of the puzzle. You know, for you to make your diagnosis, and then even when you make your diagnosis, then that bit of information can maybe then help you determine what kind of treatment you're going to give. But it, it's it's sort of this it's it's just one input into uh, into in, into the process. Um, and when you don't have it, you know, you can still diagnose and you can still come up with you know whatever treatment you need to give, but. You're doing it with far more limited information, and so, you know, presumably you won't have outcomes which are as good.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a great analogy. Um, I just looked up it. Atul Gawande. I think is the author you that's were. That's right, Atul Gawande. One, one of my wife's favorite people in the world. Um, okay. But um, and then just to sort of feel in the analogy that I'm understanding it, I think that um, the you know what 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 people in soccer journalism are trying to do is tell better stories, more compelling stories about soccer that fit into, you know, that fit into a broader world and that tell the stories of the people and the teams and all of that. And um, so how can analytics help you do that? Well, if it's one tool that can sort of tighten down the story that you're telling so that it's, more correctly describing reality, so it's more. It, it gives you a better understanding of the things you're seeing on the field. Gives you a better idea of how a you know a director of football is is imagining his or her job. All all of those things analysts can do to help you tell a better and more compelling story. And I, 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 that that to me is sort of the the toolbox vision of of, of using stats that I like. Um, the question is how to get people to see it that way and to use those tools well, both of which are kind of hard things to do. Yeah, I I think it's a good point. I I think,
2: I wonder too if maybe, and there's obvious reasons why it's happened in in England first and obviously bleeding over from from the U.S. and common language. I wonder if maybe things might not have been better if the analytics revolution hadn't crossed the pond and (laughs) Gone to Spain or Italy first, um, simply because the media in those countries tends to be a lot more analytical. What you said about like, you know, sports journalism is about narratives, and yeah, that's true here in England. I'm not sure how true it is in other countries. In other countries, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of analyze the game and you analyze why things happened. It's not about a narrative, you know, it, it's not about the personalities um, as much as it is about sort of what what you empirically see on the field and 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 the stuff that you can measure with your eyes and and then there's a big gap because you know we're measuring it with I said we're, without analytical tools but but we're there to analyze I say we as in it's like, like you know these countries yeah it's just- whereas in England historically. You know that's never been the case. You've, you know, I think, I and I don't mean it in a pejorative way, and, and it's obviously changing a little. But you guys, you think funny. Go back and read match reports from 25 years ago, um, and I don't mean like you know match reports in the Sun. I mean like match reports in the Times, the the Telegraph, the Guardian. Um, they're all about showing so-and-so showed heart, so-and-so showed passion, uh, a bunch of quotes, this guy passed to that guy who scored, right? Um, so there wasn't really that, th- that culture of breaking it down. Or, or I'll make another analogy I think shows the, the difference where here it's more about storytelling and color. Um, I, I have friends who cover golf, and, and whenever they have the open – uh, over here and you have, like, the U.S. – I mean, I'm not a golf guy at all, but um, but whenever you have, like, the U.S. golf pack come over, it, the, the, the joke is that the guys from here always ask questions of, you know, how did you feel on the seventh hole and, you know, what did it mean to you when you did that? Whereas the American golf guys are always like, you know, why did you use a six iron? Why did you do this? What did you think of, you know, the way the green was cut or – Or whatever the hell, like you know, technical golf questions. Um, I wonder if you'd had that same sort of more analytical mindset here in, in in telling the story of the game, whether maybe it would have been it would have been a smoother transition.
1: Problems. It's
2: human
0: nature to hate problems. But why is that? After all, problems inspire us to mend things, bend things, make things better. That's why so many people work with IBM on everything. From city traffic to ocean plastic, new schools to new energy, flight delays to food safety,
2: Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put Smart to
1: work. Visit ibm.com/smart to learn more. So I, this brings me to like a, another question about, I guess you know, using stats and analytics writ, writ large, which is that like people who work inside the game, right? People who work at clubs, um, they have an obligation to get stuff right. You know, they, they have to like make the best decisions they can for their club to accomplish their aims. On the total other end of the spectrum are supporters and fans, right? They, they can believe whatever the heck they want. It's, it's, it's their right as fans to interpret and enjoy and follow the game however they want to. And so the media sort of fits, and like, we should be fair here. Like, we shouldn't talk about the media like it's something that we're not a part of. <laughs> um, like, I'm a full-time ESPN employee. Like, I am part of the media. Um, so sure am I. Yes, right. Yes, we work for the same people. Um, several steps removed, but we work for the same people. Um, so, and I don't not. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so the question that I sort of come back to is, to what, you know, where is the obligation for the media to get it right? I mean, they're obviously serving a different purpose. And, you know, like, I want to emphasize there's nothing wrong with telling stories, and telling stories is good and important, and it's an important part of the way that people consume sports and that people want to consume sports. But the question I have is how much of an obligation do you have to make sure that the story you are telling are true is true, and how much of that is it then incumbent on people in the media to use all of the tools available to them in service of that end? I, I think
2: that's that's a great point. Um, and I think you know this is where where I think to some degree, a we need to stop talking about the media as, you know, yes, the MSM, the mainstream media. Uh, I'm, I'm a big Alex Jones Infowars uh, <laughs> uh, fan. And you know a, uh, but I do recognize that it's not one model, right. Uh, you can read different things on different levels uh, that speak to, 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 to different arguments and, and, and that's fine. And then that's how it should be. And and they can address both the people who, you know, are just passionate about their team and they don't really care about the nuts and bolts and they just want to enjoy it. Or they can, you know, they can cater to the casual fan and they can cater to, you know, the people who, who sit there and agonize and obsess over whether they should play a three or a four at the back and, you know, what minute Giroud should come on and, and whatever, right? I, we're able to cater uh, to all that, um, and I think sometimes, um, I mean, I see it here here in in England we have this program called Match of the Day, which is like sort of the main highlight show, and it's presented by Gary Lineker on Saturday, Mark Chapman on Sunday, and and I, you know, full disclosure, I know some people who work on it, and if you're an analyst on that show, uh, it's kind of like a curse because you're usually an ex-pro, and there will be a certain Number of people on social media who will go and no matter what you say, they will mock you and make fun of you. Um, And the reason being is they're going to be like, well, you say stupid things and why can't you be more analytical? Um, Well, the reason is that, you know, this is a show that's watched by eight and a half billion people and there's probably a big chunk of people there who really don't care. Uh, And there's probably also people who are, you know, the hardcore. People who want the high-end analysis and the video breakdowns, they can get them elsewhere. They can get them from their local paper. They can get them from, uh, you know, f- f- from from blogs. Now, if if I'm a Liverpool fan, right, hypothetically, I want to get my sort of nitty-gritty information from um, from the Liverpool Echo. From the Anfield index, from and I'm probably leaving out any of the the, the millions of Liverpool related uh, uh, or the Anfield, uh, sorry the Anfield rap um, I'm going to get it from there. I'm not going to get it from you know 30 seconds of Robbie Savage talking over pictures. You know, it's stupid for me to to expect it, and it's not fair to him. And uh, so, you know, I I, I I think there is room for everybody, um, but you know, we we do need I think you know, a slightly more, more specialized outlook, and, and maybe we shouldn't be talking about, you know, the media as a whole. We, we should recognize that to some degree people will specialize.
1: So I want to drill down on that just a little bit, because I think something that I hear from analytics people um, who accept completely the idea of specialization and that, you know, you want to be able to serve different audiences, is that at a more general level, sometimes they feel like you don't necessarily need more specificity. It's just that a greater familiarity with, in this case, stats, but not just sort of leaning on stats. Sometimes it's a greater familiarity with another league or, um, you know, in the case of transfers, there's all sorts of economic ideas that a greater familiarity could, could lead to just even better, more accurate basic analysis. And so I think sometimes the complaint that I hear, and it sort of expresses itself in weird ways with people complaining over terms like has to score or nine out of ten times or whatever those things are, is not so much that they're demanding more detailed analysis, but they do want more accurate general analysis, I think, would be the way to term it. Yeah, so
2: I... I take your point, and I think obviously we in the media can always do a better job and, and and be better informed. But you know, there are certain things that fundamentally make this sport very different from you know if you're going to benchmark it to to American sports or or whatever, which you know in some ways you inevitably do. Um, one obvious thing is. For example, I live in England. I live. I watch more televised football than probably most people I know um, across Europe. But the fact of the matter is, I don't. You know, somebody who, for example, is a West Brom fan will have a much deeper knowledge of West Brom and West Brom's players and who's done well on whatever than I will simply because. I don't watch West Brom every week and that's a team that's in the most popular league in the world in a country I live in. And I might get to watch West Brom three or four times in person this season and maybe another 10 West Brom games live, but but that's the extent of the information I have. Now add to that, what happens when players come in from other leagues, which is obviously unique to not not entirely unique, but partly unique uh, or certainly no other I think mainstream sport has it on the scale that you have when guys come in, you know, from other leagues, from from other countries. Um, you know, Mustafi, great example. So he joins Arsenal this year. So I've seen the guy play for Germany. I saw him play for Sampdoria. I saw him play for Valencia. But, you know, I maybe watched 20% of his minutes the last three years. I can tell you that's enough for me to... Just make a sketch about what kind of player he is, but it's going to be a it's still going to be a very incomplete sketch. Um, now, compound this with the fact that a lot of the analysis here comes from well, certainly in terms of the, the mainstream media in in or, or the major newspapers here in England, you know they tend not to have team beat reporters. Normally, it's all it's all regional. So, you know, one guy will be on the Merseyside beat and, uh, you know, he might do Liverpool, uh, or Everton or, or or the Manchester clubs and they all swap off and then the number ones kind of go where they want to. So then that guy will be put somewhere else. You don't have that many B reporters who just follow the same club. Um, and then the guys who get on television and I say this with the greatest of respect, uh, the good ones may be very good at describing what they see, but you know they don't. A lot of them just don't do the backstory research because it would take way too much time. And even if they did, it would be incomplete. One big thing I learned about, for example, the media in this country vis-a-vis you know ESPN and other outlets in the states is that they are when they put an ex-pro on, they are much much more demanding. You know they make them prep. Um, I know that you know. Sometimes you'll have like sort of this, this, this boot camp that they send them on before, so they learn how to speak and they train them and they watch video and stuff like that. Um, that's not the case here, and I know this for a fact that the various uh, media outlets here that or TV outlets that I've come on that I've worked on, you know, here it's more a case of, oh look, you know, Bob used to play for Tottenham, um, you know, let's bring him in, and they're not. Very rarely, and then there are exceptions to this. But a lot of people don't have much interest in in doing much much research, and they'll just describe what they see on the pitch.
0: Yeah, I think it's um, it. It seems like what you're describing. I, I think it's a really good point that there is the the volume of time that you would need to speak relatively authoritatively about like eight different things in soccer in the over the course of a half hour or hour show is not really a reasonable demand on anyone um, and what what, it, what and, and it seems like there's an analogy here with analytics obviously if you're doing sort of a statistical analysis you can just do that, and 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 if you've got good tools, or you've got good people doing it, or you've got a good database, you can spit out some numbers on Mustafa, You can spit out some numbers on Valencia. Um, but from the sort of stats side, what you need is that modesty to say this: these are some of the indicators you can get from the, fr- from these numbers, but we're certainly not in a place where these are definitive. And at the same time, if you've been, you know trying to say something about Mustafi, you're acknowledging that you've only seen so much of this and these are sort of his tendencies, but all all of it calls for greater, if we're talking about being accurate, it all calls for greater modesty, but modesty in claims is not generally um, what brings the eyeballs, what brings the clicks.
2: Yeah, and, and, and this is, you know, this is the single most frustrating thing Um, I think that if you watch, you know, when you talk about the tendencies, uh, about a player, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't take you more than a couple games to realize that, you know, Ryan Mason is not a gifted passer of the ball. (laughs) He brings, you know, a by at, at premier league, premier league standard, you know, and you could also figure out that he's somebody who's, who's committed and he's a high energy player. Um, but we've reached the level though with the, with this need for, 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 for hot takes or whatever that, that it just, just boils down to, you know, Ryan Mason is garbage. Ryan Mason can't pass. Um, I mentioned Ryan Mason on purpose because I didn't want to mention the other guy where it's so obvious to me is, is Mario Balotelli. So he comes here and you know, obviously he doesn't produce when he on his return to Liverpool and whatever and I buy the argument you know his attitude he's lazy he doesn't underachieve but when people say like oh I don't see what the fuss is about or you know you know you he's what's he ever achieved and there's no ability there I'm thinking to myself you know what I go back to the Daniel Patrick Moynihan quote like you're entitled to your opinions but you're not entitled to your own facts you know he is empirically a gifted player. He's empirically an athletic player. He empirically has achieved things. He scored two goals against Germany in a European Cup semi-final. Which you know, if I wanted to be really mean, I'd kind of point out. You know, you'll have to wait several lifetimes before one of you people here in England achieve that. But I won't say that. Um, you know, a, he, he set up the winner that one Man City their first ever. Uh, the, 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 their first ever uh, Premier League title. He was man of the match in an FA Cup final. He scored twice at Old Trafford for City. Now, does all this stuff mean that he is a good player, he's a desirable player to have now? No, it does not. But you you should be able to tell, in the same way with, with Mason, you should be able to tell certain things while allowing for all those uncertainties and all that that lack of more recent data or that uncertainty surrounding the more recent data or information around them but you know there, there are certain things you can tell but it has to be tempered you know by, by by these realizations of what what you don't know
1: yeah i think you 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 picked a couple of players there that um are near and dear to uh, to analytics folks hearts in general uh in, in, in pretty much exactly the same ways that you suggested, uh, both that that Mason clearly has, you know, lots of those intangible things, but also clearly, and it shows up in the data, doesn't have some very important, like tangible things. And perhaps the reverse is true for Mario Balotelli. Like you can see clearly in the numbers what he's very good at, and that thing is a real thing and then you ask questions about all of the other stuff. Um, But I think it brings us a little bit full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is this idea that um, using numbers, and using numbers well, is a way to contextualize all this stuff. Um, And it really does mirror how uh, people watch the game. And I guess, where I want to go from here is to ask about about this. This it's it's almost like a language divide. It's almost like when you speak and you use a number, people are so uh, conditioned to not responding to numbers that they respond to the number before they respond to largely broadly before they respond to the point underlying it, and. When I hear people say there isn't a broad market for analytics, my interpretation is often that there is there's not a broad market for the language of numbers, but that there might be a broad audience for those numbers being interpreted into the language of soccer that people already speak. Um, there's not a lot of question there. My question, I guess, is do you do – do are, are you sort of sympathetic to that view, and do you think that sometimes, like, conceptually stuff gets washed out, you know, the the, the conceptual baby gets washed out with, with sort of the language of numbers, bathwater? I,
2: I, I do have sympathy there, and maybe I can, I can mention a very recent example, so recent that it hasn't actually happened yet, but um, I'm supposed to write a piece for The Times on Saturday about – Paul Pogba and sort of what's different about him at United this year versus uh, his last two seasons at, at Juventus and you know what's wrong is he being used differently and it's, it's pretty much a, a broad remit um, and I and I cover like you know obviously his tactical position on on the pitch but um, but also I, I they got me all this opta data as well and you know just being a colleague one of the first things you notice is that Is up to numbers, and you know this isn't the type of analytics you guys do. This is just, you know, the 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 duels won and 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 chances created and that kind of stuff. But it's all broadly similar. Yep. In terms of the stuff he does, right? And so I wish, and I don't know how to go and scrape for X Y coordinates and all that fancy coding stuff that y'all do. Um, So.
1: Like I do, I not I get ESPN to do it. Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, well, they won't do it for me. No, but uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have the event data, so I don't know where it happens. One thing visually, and and this is sort of where I help paint the picture. So I've spoken to people who've covered him, and I've spoken to people who've who've worked with him at Juventus. Um, people have scouted him for opposing clubs, and the general consensus seems to be that. He's doing the same things, but he's doing them from worse positions. Um, so he's taking worse shots than he did at Juventus in worse circumstances. When he shot on goal at Juventus, a lot of the times when he was successful, or even with his passing, he would do this thing where he would start from from deep on the left-hand side, and he would run without the ball, and he'd receive the ball, and then he would shoot, or, or he would find a pass or play a 1-2. Um, those are things that at United he's not doing because he's playing a different role. Um, so I wish I didn't, I, I had access and I suppose permission from Opta, um, but most of all access and knowledge to go and put this kind of stuff together. The event data, this is where it happens. Uh, these are the guys about them. And I wish I knew how to represent that graphically because that would make for a much better story than the one I'm going to write, which is going to be based you know almost entirely on on what people see and, and we'll have some numbers, but it will be mostly sort of deduced and then and, and, you know old school reporting, talking to people. Um, so I, to me, that is a good example where you could put those two things together and you know it would really add value to it. Uh, rather than and I'm and I'm grateful for the tools I do have. I have some heat maps and you know the basic stuff, but I just don't have the cool stuff that I read when you know when I read you guys or or StatsBomb or whatever.
0: Yeah, I what what is interesting about this sort of this set of examples, um, Balotelli, Pogba, M- Mason um, is there are certain ways in which um, analytics can give you something very different in telling each of those stories. Like in some ways, the the, the Balotelli story that we we're talking about is very much a sort of story about the person. The stories about Mario Balotelli have a lot to do with sort of his personality, who he is, the way he's worked in, within the sort of clubhouses and teams and, 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 and the national team. And what sort of both good, you know, I remember watching Mario Balotelli when he was really, really good and... I have numbers on the kind of shot and, and goal data and, 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 and chance creation data we had on Mario Balotelli can say Mario Balotelli was a fantastic 21-year-old player and something has gone on. And that can sort of contextualize the story about the person. Whereas in the Pogba situation, um, it's a little bit different because we don't have to hand the, the best data to show what's different. But what you want to do is try to tell a uh, a tactical story, better yeah. hopefully with analytics. Well, and in both
2: cases, also, Michael, it, that, sorry, if I can jump in there, um, and here it's, it's it's kind of like you know we can't help but sort of fall into the personality trap. <laughs> is we, in terms of the general consensus, is that Pogba is intelligent and level-headed and hardworking, and people like that. They tend to be very consistent in the way they behave. There's no surprises there, right? So clearly, if Pogba's team isn't performing as well as it was expected, it must must it can't be Pogba. It must be the way he's being used. Whereas, because Mario belongs in a straitjacket, <laughs> according to some, then if Mario's not performing, then it must be there must be something with Mario, right? It it, it becomes—it's not how I'm using the the player; it's automatically the player itself. And I'm not saying that that's an an untrue narrative, but it is something that we regress to immediately, right? Nobody's nobody criticizes Pogba as a person, right, or or his work ethic or whatever. It immediately reverts because he's a good guy. So it, it must be because Mourinho's using him incorrectly.
1: Yeah. yeah, there's assumptions there. Right. And, yeah, and so I think I think that like sort of the the underlying theme that we're talking about this whole time is that it seems like the way in which people that are comfortable with analytics use it, and the way in which people who are comfortable talking to people who are comfortable at, with analytics use it, like <laughs> you, is as a sort of baseline and framing tool to help tell a story, uh, and then to sort of nail down the spaces where there are interesting, unexplainable things going on that we can then wonder about, report on, talk about. But it seems that the people that aren't comfortable with stats look at analytics, look at stats, and look at it as saying something definitive that has to be proved or disproved. Um, that,
2: that's exactly it. And in one fell swoop, I'll give you uh, an example and also plug my unauthorized biography of Claudio Ranieri, which is out today. Oh, wow. Um, oh, awesome. I got, well, because everybody, I, was, I had to write a book about Claudio Ranieri. I, he's got a fascinating backstory before Lester. I wrote that, but I also knew that, you know, people were going to buy it on the back of Leicester. It's difficult to write or report really new stuff on Leicester. So I put a little twist on it. I got a guy that I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, uh, one Dan Altman, to oh, go sure. and, write about Lester's season from an analytical perspective. Um and he produced sort of an, an original bit of work for me, which which is included in the book. But what I won't give away necessarily what it was, you can buy the book. But what what's interesting about it is that, you know, when I've shared this, his findings with with some people and you know, it, it is a combination of these are things that Leicester that were different about Leicester this year, and these are you know the, these might be down to Ronyyari's tactics, and uh, and these players completely overperformed, and that might be down to luck, um, and people just want to know okay, so were they lucky or weren't they, and to what degree right. were they lucky, you know, and then and because you can you could theoretically use Altman's data to prove that they were lucky, or you could use Altman's data to prove that they were good, you know, then the narrative becomes, oh, look, you can use it to prove anything, right? So, and rather than seeing this as different pieces of a puzzle, you know, it, it becomes something that, it becomes a tool that, when used badly, you know, that I can kind of bend to my own will
1: that's that's exactly right
2: there is or confirmation bias i guess is what you guys would call it
1: that is certainly part of it there is like there is you know there's good analytics and there's bad analytics right there's doing there's doing this well and there's doing it not well and i think that because it's somewhat of a new field every piece of work tends to get uh be a referendum on doing analytics at all right it's like well, gee, this, yeah. this this thing is wrong, so I guess numbers are useless. Or, gee, this thing is right, I guess numbers have the answer. As opposed to, like, you know, sometimes a scout scouts a good player and sometimes a scout misses and you don't sort of, like, have a referendum on scouting and say we should stop scouting players because they got one wrong. Well, hang
2: on a second. Actually, what you're describing there is one of the most frequent things I hear in football from scouts um, and, and agents and managers where the absolute um, ethnic or or cultural stereotyping and generalizing of players, there's, I, I know, I, was, I have a good friend who's an agent, and he went to see of a guy who was managing a Premier League Cup uh, a couple years ago, and it was January, and they were threatened with relegation. And basically the guy said, well, you know, I need a midfielder. Uh, and he knew that the guy needed a, a sort of a high-energy, busy defensive midfielder, whatever. And he said, "Don't waste my time. You know, I only and he, I only want. I only want somebody who's well. If he's not going to be British, if he's going to be foreign, right? He has to be black. Ideally, black, um, black and French, or Slav." He has to have an ick, or as he puts it, he has to have an ick on the end of his name, right? And he asked him like, "Well, why? Like, well, because those guys, those guys will go to war for you, and you know, those guys have never let me down."
1: So yeah, now, we, we would call that bad scouting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but 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 it's it's it it's kind of like an innate thing. People regress to what they know. They regress to certain principles. The the you you'd call it you know. These are shortcuts, right? Right, for, for interpreting what well, you said before. It's like, oh, if I write, write, you know, one piece of bad analytics doesn't mean all analytics is, is is bad, but it's a very human thing in in football, right? I, I hire like you know one Brazilian goalkeeper, you know he sucks, and then I said all oh, all Brazilian goalkeepers are are bad, and so I never hire another one. Yeah, that's fair, right? Um, a, that is so innate. We have such strong and and, I, and I'm very thankful that it's going away because um, I think it does make things more more interesting in the long term. But you know, right up until the '90s, you would hear these things: oh, German footballs like this, German, you know, the Germans do this, the the the, the French do that, the Argentines do this. And I'm not suggesting there aren't some basic underlying cultural themes, but these are all big countries and. They all have different values. We, I don't know that we need these sort of archetypes to to understand the game, but they're still so ingrained. And the the, the art of generalization is kind of like a, you know, it goes hand in hand with with the sport.
1: Yeah. one one of my favorite things is always when somebody says something about English football, and as an example, they use a foreign-owned team with a foreign manager that starts a majority of foreign players. It's just like, well, what are we talking about here?
2: It's yeah, that, and 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 that happens. That happens all the time. Um, although, again, I spoke with a foreign coach who's new to the uh, uh, Premier League this year, and he talked about playing another coach from his own country earlier this year, and he said, you know, we we sort of I ex- sort of expected this is going to be like you know when we played each other back in Italy, uh, but it wasn't because the the surroundings are different, and and maybe he was overplaying the degree to which it affected them and then the style of play, but you know, from the stadium to the fans being so close to the pregame routine to the postgame, he said it's it, it, it does affect you to some degree. But then again, as with most things, it, it's a question of, of of degree and exactly, <laughs> yeah. and that's difficult to measure.
1: I think this has been a great conversation. <laughs> this is this is a a perfectly good place to stop, um, and. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And before we let you go, uh, we do this thing on the podcast where we sort of wrap up at the end of every episode by uh, keeping ourselves sane and centered and talking about something that we did this week that uh, didn't have to do with soccer. So uh, what is your non-soccer thing that you did this week, Gab? What, 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 What kept you sort of grounded? All
2: right. So... It does have a tangential link to soccer because that's how sad I am. But
1: um, We always do. We did that last week.
2: All right. Well, no, But my tangential link is I went to this thing called Time Run. And Time Run, the, the link to soccer is that one of the investors in this is Simon Oliveira, who works for Doyen, uh, who is – and Simon Oliveira was also – uh, David Beckham's longtime sort of spokesman and and friend, uh, so so that's the only the only link there. But basically, what it is is, I'm trying to, I don't know if there's a, it's really fiendishly difficult to describe. But uh, if there's any listeners who might be familiar with, there was an old TV show here in England called The Crystal Maze. Um, basically, you're in teams of four, and you're supposed to be time travelers looking for the, um, Lance of actually, uh, you would know this, Kaylee, um, the Lance that stabbed Jesus. It's the Lance of Longinus, right?
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's, 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 that's, not, that's not, that's not, the name of the, of, 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 of the person with the Lance is not in the, in the gospel. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So that, or, or, or I could do a whole Bible history corner on that, but I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know for sure.
2: We don't need to go to that. Anyway, the, the the long and short of it is there's this missing historical artifact with super, with supernatural power, which with great supernatural powers and you have to hunt it down and you're time traveling. And so like the first room you go into it's like set in the future. And there's all these little clues and puzzles that you have to do in physical tasks within the room. And they then unlock more puzzles and so on. And then you move out of the room. And then the second room was some sort of, you know, ancient tomb and you had to do this, this crap it was like a laser, which you had to figure out how to shine it on something to do something else. And, move stuff around, and then another puzzle, the, the final room was, a, it, was a, it was actually slightly creepy, it was like a Nazi-themed room, because apparently Hitler had gotten his hands on the lance of Longinus, and you had to try to stop him, and I, anyway, it was really different from the stuff that you normally do, because it was it was four of us, was, um, I went with my wife and and, and another couple, good friends from, from when I was in high school, actually, and we, we sort of, you're sitting there and you're, 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 you're solving puzzles, you're doing physical stuff, you have to work as a team and you're in this totally absurd environment. And it was just a hell of a lot of fun. And you're kind of using your brain in ways that you normally don't on a, on a daily basis. And, and, and that was really
1: cool. Awesome. That is very on brand for Double Pivot, sort of, for, for the Double oh, Pivot. No, but <laughs> yes. Do you all have that? Um, all have I that think it space? sounds like a, like an escape the room type thing. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. So I, I've never done them, but I, I have heard of their existences. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I yeah, watch. Want exactly. Watch. Exactly. Escape the room. There you go. So you managed to sum it up in in in, in three words, whereas I went on these big <laughs> tangents. But yeah, that's what it
0: is.
1: All right, Gab. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Great.
1: Anytime boys. Talk to you
0: soon. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Gab, for being on the program. Um, He not only gave us a a, a really wonderful non-soccer thing, he also added like four other non-soccer things throughout the course of the conversation.
1: Um, Seriously. Got Atul Gawande references. uh, It was good stuff. Yeah. But, um, Nonetheless,
0: we would like to add some more of that, Um, because we've got our own non-soccer
1: things, and uh, Goodman, you want to take it? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, Technically, I think I'm still Other Mike, but who really knows at this point? (laughs) So (laughs) Are any of you counting? Because we keep not. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. Hey, listeners, if you want to ingratiate yourself to us, we are too lazy to add 10 teams' points totals together. Um anyway, uh, for me this week, uh, my wife's been away on business, and because I'm a super cool guy, that means I sit on my butt and watch a bunch of television and get caught up on things that uh, she's not particularly interested in watching. So uh, like everybody else on Twitter, I watched the season of, of Black Mirror, which uh, I enjoyed uh, to various degrees, and then I got myself caught up on Westworld uh, on HBO, which is the I want to talk about. Um, Briefly, if you don't know, but it seems like everybody knows, uh, Westworld is like this um, futuristic, uh, highly advanced animatronic world uh, for adults that they can go and live in and hang out with AI robots and do stuff, and it is modeled on the Old West. And that's the premise, and then within the premise, something mysterious is going on in Westworld involving its creators, its uh, artificial inhabitants, and the humans in it. Um, they have, it is it is pretty explicitly a great mystery. Um, the show's well made. Uh, there's some really enjoyable performances. Uh, Anthony Hopkins is in it, Ed uh, Harris is, is in it. Uh, Newton is in it. It's, it's, it's really, really, I mean, like, the quality of the show of, of the show being made is really good. But I find it very empty. I find that I am being asked to invest in, believe in and care about where it's going not really because of anything that it's done, but because of the muscle memory of Prestige TV. I feel like this show is built on the expectation that you are going to come into it assuming it's a really good show, and then perceive everything that goes on through that lens so that you add imports to things that maybe without the preconceived notion of them being important would just sort of feel like really dull and stilted dialogue. Um, Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's bad TV converge there a lot where like the only thing holding a show together is whatever the twist or the answer is. Uh, And then people freak out at the end because you've sort of invested your time in this for, and there's no way that whatever the answer is is going to live up to it. And that's not really what Westworld is. I mean, it's, you know, there are good performances. It's richly made. um, It's HBO. Uh, So, you know, there's, you know, your your, your mandated dose of naked people. Um, But. It feels like the show is asking to be perceived as high TV without doing anything to earn the moniker of high TV. And that's a little bit of a turnoff. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop watching, although I may because my wife is coming home and she has no interest. Um, <laughs> but in a world where there's a lot of good television out there, I don't know. I'm getting to the point where like, I get a little bit resentful when I feel like a TV show assumes it's great without showing its work. Because there's lots of great stuff out there that doesn't get enough attention, and so I, and that's that's how I feel a little bit about Westworld—that it assumes it's really, really good, and assumes its audience is going to think it's really, really good, without necessarily taking the steps to get it there. So that is my lukewarm Westworld uh, review for you. you I have girls? a quick Westworld question. Um, so and, and this is something I do
0: with uh, with food culture, with a lot of things, where I read about it and don't. Watch it and develop opinions based on not watching it. Um, So I want to run something by you that is based on really like you know telephone game cultural analysis. All right, hit me and see if it's right. Because I, so my understanding, so it's it's a show is about there's all these robots basically, and they exist in this this very specified uh, world and. There is sort of a larger question of, like, how human are these robots? How are they responding to their sort of abuse within the video game setting? Um, But then the big mystery is within that world. The big mystery is within in the sort of westworld video game rather than how this all applies to the larger the sort of larger human and robot
1: world in which it happens well that's a really good question and it's funny you should ask because it is intentionally vague uh on that um Mm. on on that note the 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 mystery is certainly situated within within westworld um but there is the matter of a creator who died mysteriously uh, while the world was being made originally. Um, there is a question of, there's a, I mean, there's a natural question of, you know, the sort of um, inception question of once you're sort of emulating reality, can you really narratively be sure that anything is actually reality? And it leans into that. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely some sort of Jump cutting and editing around that that, that leaves open the question of um, chronology. So, yes, the mystery is situated within Westworld, uh, and it is it, it you are at least in, you are at least narratively being led to believe that it is being followed both by humans who go into the world and alarmingly and disturbingly perhaps by the artificial intelligence uh, entities. It's weird, you know because Westworld is based on some uh, older literature, they come off as more super advanced animatronics conceptually (laughs) than what we have come to sort of conceive of of artificial intelligence as. Um, But yes, all of that is sort of mixed in the stew and not yet answered. Yeah, uh,
0: because I... I think I'm going to switch my, my non-soccer thing on the fly and sort wow. of continue this conversation. I know high degree of difficulty, um, because what it reminded me of is a show. I because out of, again, sort of um, boredom and having time on my hands. I ended up watching a couple episodes streaming. Cause I had I, missed the, I, my wife, I had watched almost the whole show and not quite the whole show was the old uh, Joss Whedon show dollhouse.
1: Yes. Um, which which was house,
0: yeah. which which is a which is a, a show that it was a, it was a, in many ways a big mess the concept of the show was um it, it exists in a similar a similar kind of near future dealing with questions of identity and humanity um where someone has come up with technology to wipe a person's mind and then input a brand new mind into it and so and, and what and, and what the 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 dollhouse specifically is the is the sort of small world in which it exists, which is where a, a group of men and women are sort of available for rent, and they can have inputted into them whatever person and you know abilities, desires, etc. You want
1: to input into that person. So right, the major, the major sort of structural difference in the shows is that. Westworld is intended to be a theme park, so you don't, as far as we know for sure, you don't have the not human beings leaving the park. Um, It is operated and run and it costs an arm and a leg and people come and go into the park. That's how it's set up. Um, And so fundamentally if that's not the relationship if you were to find out later on in the show that that's not the relationship it's because something has gone wrong whereas in dollhouse they sort of thematically structurally start from the point of having overridden that rail and it's it's supposed to mix seamlessly into the wider world yeah
0: and and the thing that
1: dollhouse i think
0: does have a perspective on this? I think you can interpret the show's perspective on it, but many of the episodes, partly possibly because of the network suits intervening, um, did not strike a clear moral perspective on the idea that like these people, that, that like this was a fundamental and profound abuse of the people who had who, who were the dolls. That they were being used in a way that was sort of morally unforgivable, and the show sort of eventually sort there. of slid to it got there, and I and I think that that was absolutely the vision, but it was it was it would go back and forth on how sort of fun and sexy these stories were supposed to be, and watching a fun sexy story of that at its heart is about a sad person who signed a bad contract being abused is is messy morally.
1: Yeah, Dollhouse always seemed to suffer from not being able to be what it wanted to be. Yeah. Um, Was was sort of my memory of the show. Yeah,
0: and and the thing that Dollhouse did that was really, like, the, the thing that elevated the show for me... Um, were they, they had two it's a it's a two it's two short seasons and the concluding episode of each season is set in the future from where the show is set and it's set in a complete apocalyptic wasteland where the um the technology in the show that created the dollhouse has basically destroyed human civilization yeah and and it It is taking the the implications of the show to an extremely serious place, as well as to a place where you can kind of have fun in the world without quite as much of a moral mess. And and, and Dollhouse as a show that is trying to get to this point and showing how the apocalypse happens, through people not understanding the both the moral, scientific, and just practical political weight of what they're doing, that's a really interesting show that Dollhouse wasn't always, but could be at its best. Yes. And, and I sort of,
1: yeah. Oh, I, I should point out about Westworld that you don't ever see anybody who is not involved in either being in Westworld or running Westworld. Um, yeah. You were never off the premise. Disease of of either in the park or operating the park. So there are, depending on how richly you want to uh, theorize, significant questions of <laughs> what is happening in the broader spate of the world.
0: Yeah, and, and to me that's
1: where that premise could get really, really interesting. Yeah, but you gotta you gotta you gotta build and nail your fundamentals first, yep. and like. Yeah, there just, to me, there isn't enough, like... You know, Dollhouse kind of assumed um, that you couldn't just go for something big, right? And because it was on network and there were always sort of questions about Joss Whedon in the suits, like there was this assumption that you needed to just have a week-to-week deal um, and, and, and dumb it down and just be very fundamental a lot of the time about what the show was. Um and Westworld makes the opposite extreme assumption that this show is good. The parts of it are good. You will believe that it is good until we give you good reason to. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that is particularly effective either.
0: All right. So that, that has been our, uh,
1: our, our uh,
0: possibly... Uh, uh, possibly dystopian sci-fi
1: analysis section of the Double Pivot podcast, which actually ties um, in really well to what Gab was talking about. So <laughs> there we go.
0: Is analytics leading to the end of human civilization? Tune in next week on the Double Pivot podcast.
1: <laughs> I'm resisting uh, temptation to say anything about electoral politics at this moment. Oh
0: God. I think I think that's all for us. Uh <laughs> right. we got to go. <laughs> we'll
1: see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.